This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Paul Frampton? Paul Frampton was born in England on October 31, 1943. He went to Oxford University, where he earned a bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctor of philosophy, and a doctor of science. He became a theoretical particle physicist and was a distinguished professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. At age 50, Paul married a woman named Anne Marie, who described herself as a physics groupie. The couple divorced in 2008. Anne Marie suggested that Paul had the emotional ability of a three-year-old. Paul said that he was interested in finding a wife who was somewhere between 18 and 35 years old. He connected with a woman from China, but the relationship ended after they met for an hour. It sounds like maybe it only took a minute for the woman to make her decision. 59 minutes of that was her being polite. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. In November of 2011, 68-year-old Paul Frampton was on a dating site and met a person who claimed to be a Czech bikini model named Denise Milani. She was described as exceedingly attractive. Paul was quite lonely and chose to chat online with Denise frequently. Denise recognized that she was attractive and sought to explain why she was interested in Paul. She claimed that she wanted to settle down and have children. She was tired of posing on the beach wearing a bikini. Paul's friends wondered what he was doing. They told him that no attractive young woman was going to marry him. But Paul believed that Denise was telling the truth. He was very excited at the prospect of being with her. He particularly liked the idea of having children with her and building a family. He wondered about all those men who were attracted to her. There was a lot of competition, but Paul believed that Denise truly loved him. After all, she frequently stated as much. Denise refused to talk to Paul on the phone, but she did agree to meet with him in La Paz, Bolivia. She claimed that she was going to be there on a photo shoot. Paul departed for Bolivia on January 7, 2012. He thought he would be gone just a few days. His flight took him from Toronto, Canada to Santiago, Chile, then on to Bolivia. Denise had sent him an e-ticket but it was invalid. So for the first day of his journey, he was stuck at the Toronto airport. After finally arriving in Bolivia four days later, Paul did not see Denise. She claimed that she had to go to another photo shoot in Brussels. She would send him another e-ticket and he could meet her there. Paul stayed in a hotel as he waited for this ticket. The ticket that arrived was not for Brussels. It was for Buenos Aires. Denise said that another ticket to Brussels was in transit. Denise asked Paul if he could bring her bag with him on his trip. She had left it in Bolivia. Paul agreed to transport the bag. Before he left Bolivia, he communicated with a friend who was both a physicist and a lawyer. The friend explained to Paul that he better make sure there was no cocaine in the bag. When Paul didn't seem alarmed, the friend said, Well, you're going to get killed. Who should I contact when you disappear? Paul responded that the friend could contact his brother and ex-wife. 
on January 20, a man met Paul in the street in front of his hotel and gave him a black suitcase. This was the bag that supposedly belonged to Denise. Paul would later say he didn't remember what the guy looked like. Paul examined the suitcase. It appeared to be empty. He messaged Denise and asked why this particular bag was so important. She said it had sentimental value. He put dirty clothes in the bag and started on his journey. He flew from Bolivia to Buenos Aires and waited for the ticket to Brussels. Before that ticket arrived, Paul contacted somebody back home to get a ticket to North Carolina. He was tired of waiting, but he thought that Denise may still want her bag, so he decided to bring it with him to the United States. He checked both his bag and her bag, then went to his gate. After responding to a page over the loudspeaker, he was confronted by police officers and placed under arrest. He was disappointed because he thought he was being promoted to first class. That's why he thought they called him over the loudspeaker. As it turns out, he was going to a dangerous prison because the empty suitcase contained two kilograms of cocaine. So he went from believing he was going to be flying first class to going to prison, almost as bad as flying economy. Paul maintained his innocence, and he wasn't too worried. He thought the authorities would contact Denise and work everything out. This was just a big misunderstanding. In the meantime, a notorious criminal took Paul under his wing. He protected Paul from being murdered in prison. It's not clear why he chose to protect a physicist. Perhaps he wanted Paul to complete his physics homework in prison. It's not clear. The University of North Carolina placed Paul on leave without his $106,000 a year salary, which may have been a violation of their own policies. Paul could no longer afford a private attorney. He had to use a public defender. Public defenders in this area are not known for being efficient. I'm guessing the motto of the public defender's office is something like, we'll be happy to talk to you. Come see us when you get out of prison. After being incarcerated for about a month, Paul finally realized that the person he was talking to was not the real Denise Milani, rather someone impersonating her. Several of the inmates had been telling him this repeatedly, and he finally believed it. The authorities concluded that the real Denise Milani had no connection to Paul or drug smuggling. She would later say she felt sympathy for Paul. The strategy for Paul's defense was to portray him as a brilliant but gullible professor who was out of touch with how the world works. He was childlike and simply did not know that he was carrying cocaine. Three mental health professionals assessed Paul. All three agreed that he had narcissistic personality features, but two of the professionals did not think the narcissism rose to the level of pathological. Although Paul's defense was making what initially could pass as a reasonable assertion, statistics were not on Paul's side. The consensus in the world of drug enforcement is that pretty much everybody transporting drugs knows what they are doing. They are fully aware that they are committing a crime. Now, some of those people may be coerced into it, but they still know what they're doing. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. 
head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Paul's trial started on November 12, 2012. Seven days later, he was convicted and sentenced to four years and eight months in prison. He was released in 2014 with the understanding that he would never return to Argentina. Somehow, I doubt that Paul was too broken up about that stipulation. After his release from prison, he won a lawsuit against the University of North Carolina. They had to give him his back pay. He found work at the University of Salento in Italy and continued to function as a professor. Now moving to my analysis. There are many unanswered questions in this case. For example, what was the plan of these drug dealers? Why didn't they give Paul the ticket to Brussels in time? Was that even his intended destination? Why did they trust him to do anything? They didn't get caught, but they could have. Paul getting arrested could have led to their arrest. Why did they invest their time in trying to manipulate a college professor into transporting drugs? It seems like this drug smuggling operation may have had some management problems. Were they trying to transport drugs or write a screenplay for a fish-out-of-water romantic comedy. Moving to the next question, was Paul Frampton actually guilty? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea of guilt, starting with the inculpatory evidence. Paul Frampton voluntarily carried a bag containing cocaine into an airport and tried to board a flight. Paul had sent a number of messages that were quite suspicious in the form of text and email. There were 30 messages altogether. Paul texted Denise on January 22, the day he was arrested. He wrote, quote, was worried only about sniffer dogs, but more. He also wrote, quote, need to know if your loyalty is with the bad guy, agent, and Bolivian friends, or good guy, your husband, unquote. Another text message was about the hotel in Brussels and an ambush. Paul sent an email to Denise, which read, quote, this stuff is worth nothing in Bolivia, but millions in Europe. You meet me at the airport, and we do not go near the hotel. The agent suggested stay at another hotel, unquote. Paul sent other text messages. He talked about the arrival time changing, and then talked about how Denise was ignoring him. He sent a text message at 1.06 p.m., which read, quote, we may do a cool one million, unquote. Paul had written a strange message on a piece of paper. It read, Quote, one gram, $200, 2,000 grams, $400,000, unquote. The bag he was carrying had 1,980 grams of cocaine. Now moving to the exculpatory evidence. Paul had an explanation for these suspicious messages. He said he was joking. His friend in North Carolina had warned him that he could be transporting cocaine. Paul was just trying to be funny. He was just trying to keep Denise amused. Paul also had an explanation for the note referencing the 2,000 grams. He said he wrote the note after he was arrested. 
His defense presented video surveillance, which appeared to show that Paul was completely unconcerned about the bag. At one point, he left it unattended at the cafe in the airport for 25 minutes. Paul's email account contained a number of messages to Denise that made it seem like he thought they were going to be together romantically. She would move to North Carolina, they would take walks on the beach, she would become pregnant, and would eventually strike a deal with Victoria's Secret. When considering all the evidence, do I think that Paul Frampton was guilty? Yes, I believe he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and guilty in reality. He was criminally responsible whether his motive was money or he agreed to do it based on a misplaced devotion to a bikini model impersonator. What do I think happened in this case? What was Paul's motive? Mental health professionals determined that Paul was narcissistic. He claimed that he was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder. These are two different constructs. They're really not even that closely related. His narcissistic traits may include arrogance, grandiosity, self-centeredness, and fantasies of the perfect love. As for schizoid personality features, his behavior is consistent with a few of the symptoms, like being detached and choosing mostly solitary activities, but other symptoms do not seem to be a good match, like having no interest in sexual experiences, lacking close friends, not having relationships, and appearing indifferent to praise or criticism. Considering this personality profile, narcissistic with some schizoid features, it seems likely that Paul truly believed that someone as young and beautiful as Denise would be interested in him. This made sense based on his beliefs. He thought a lot of himself. Therefore, he believed he could attract someone who he considered to be high status. He told a reporter that he was in the top 1% of intelligence. He felt like Denise was in the top 1% of attractiveness. Therefore, they were an ideal couple. One discussion that this case has brought up is the idea that extremely intelligent people like Paul are extremely valuable to society, and therefore people should put up with their unusual and deviant behavior. One professor suggested that people like this were creative misfits who deserve special protection. Now that professor was specifically referring to tenure, but one could expand that to a number of areas. Should Paul have been given a pass on the charges because his motive only existed due to his narcissistic and schizoid features. I can appreciate this argument, but all Paul needed to do here was obey the law. It wasn't like he thought he was doing something legal. He knew he was breaking the law for Denise. If he truly had no idea that drugs were in the suitcase, then yes, perhaps one can forgive his irrational belief that he was going to be romantically involved with Denise. He was so taken with her that he did not want to see the truth of what was happening. But again, this was a case of simply breaking the law. After he broke the law, he tried to escape responsibility by professing his own gullibility and foolishness, a novel but ultimately unsuccessful tactic. What lessons can we learn in this case? Lesson number one, people who are extremely lonely can be extremely vulnerable. When a potential romantic partner expresses an interest in them, it's like a powerful drug. They will ignore obvious warning signs that the person is not real or their love doesn't really seem to make sense based on these circumstances. Lesson number two, people who are very highly intelligent sometimes lack social skills, common sense, and empathy. If Paul had any one of these attributes, he could have avoided the situation. Social skills would have prevented the relationship with Denise from forming in the first place. 
Common sense would have stopped him from ever traveling to Bolivia to meet someone he never talked to on the phone. Empathy would have allowed him to cognitively understand what Denise was feeling. And in that moment, he would have realized there was no way that she was ever going to be his lover. Everything comes at a cost. Extreme intelligence is no exception. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes by Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called to Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine. Her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week, we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week, we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act or King of the Hill or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us November 7th to hear Nahida's story.